You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. Sister Jenny Wilson is a member of the Sisters of Mercy of the Americas. With a bachelor's in social work and a master's in education studies, she has worked with homeless women and children as a social worker and presently is a theology teacher at Mount Mercy Academy in Buffalo, New York. She also serves as the Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Coordinator and cross-country and track coach at Mount Mercy Academy. Before entering the Sisters of Mercy, Sister Jenny completed two years as Immersive Volunteer Corps member in Guyana, South America. She now travels there yearly to work with the Mercy Volunteer Corps. She loves the outdoors, traveling, and exploring new places and cultures. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Sister Jenny and I discuss how she became a Sister of Mercy and how her time living and serving in Guyana changed her life. We talk about God calling us to surrender and how God provides the grace for us to do so. We get into what it's like to be an educator during the coronavirus pandemic and how today's teens have so much potential and passion. We also discuss how radical and messy it is to counterculturally live a life of service and contemplation, but intentionality keeps us centered on God. Enjoy. Hello, Sister Jenny Wilson. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hi, thank you for having me here today. I am excited to have a conversation with you because I've known you obviously for years through Giving Voice, the network, the collective of Catholic sisters under age 50 that we both are a part of. What do you have to tell us about how you became the person you are today and discovered your call and who God made you to be? It started with campus ministry in college. People are often surprised to know that I grew up going to public school and went to a public college and never really was around sisters. So the question is, well, then how did you become one? So the campus ministry program, it wasn't ran by religious women, but it was ran by lay people who were very passionate about their call and about being a Christian presence on campus. So with that start, then I began to ask questions like, who is God? Do I really believe in God? What is happening in my life? Do I want to be Catholic? And through that process, I really stumbled on a volunteer program that was called Mercy Volunteer Corps, and it was through the Sisters of Mercy. Mm. And at that point, I was a senior in college, and I knew that I wanted to grow my relationship with God, but I didn't know how. And it seems like I could do that by being in this volunteer program. So I lived with other volunteers, and I worked in a homeless shelter for a year. 
And I really got to explore like, who is God? Who is God through the people that I serve? And from there, I was looking for more. So then I went to Guyana, South America for two years. And the main question on everybody who kind of knew about religious life was, are you going to be a sister? And my answer was no. And I couldn't like run away fast enough when people asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) So then fast forward to six months before I came home from Guyana and things had started to shift. And I kind of heard, like I tell my students, it wasn't like a phone call from God, but I like heard this voice like saying, Jenny, I think, you know, you could be a sister of mercy. And I was like, nope, no, 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 that's not happening. And on the same day that I had that thought, these sisters who were uninvited by us came over to our house and they like (laughs) just were in our living room, like telling us their vocation story. And Mm. one was an indigenous um, Guyanese woman from who was like our version of she was an Amerindian, so Native American. And then one was Guyanese and one was American. And through all their stories, I heard the same thing. And, and I heard my story and their story. And I was just like, oh, no. What was it about their stories that resonated? I think it was a couple of things. It was their like unbelievable faith in God. One sister had a boyfriend who I believe they were pretty serious, but then he passed away and other doors became open. And it was just their trust, their trust in God that even though it doesn't seem to make sense, I'm going to trust that I'm being called. Like that sense of call, this sense of there's something, this is bigger than me, because I feel like the three of them were clear about saying they wouldn't have chose this, that they were chosen. And just that kind of kept resonating with me. And I kept praying about it, discerning it, thinking about it. And also the service that they did, it just seemed so genuine. Like they really reached out to the people of Guyana and they're really part of that community and what they do and how they do it and like that God is at the center shines through everything that they do Mm. and so I kind of went home with a well yeah that's that's what I'm being called to that's what I want Mm. but I wasn't really sure at that point how to find it but that's how it started Mm. yeah so then from there how long did it take until you entered the Sisters of Mercy so because I had been involved with Mercy Volunteer Corps for one year, then I worked some, and then two years. So the discernment process can be longer, but for me, it it took a year before I entered. So I worked the vocation director during that year. I had already been like talking with the sister in charge and Guyana, Sister Julie. And so I was already kind of doing the discernment. Mm -hmm. And then I came home and, and, and continued it. But it can take two or three years, depending on where you are in the process. But the sisters already knew me or at least knew of me and knew that I had been involved in Mercy Corps. So the process didn't take as long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you were in college, were you an education major or how did you end up becoming a teacher? <laughs> no. So I studied social work hmm. and I actually did social work for probably 10 years. I worked mostly in shelters with women and children mostly um, women in recovery, women who were in the process of getting their children back. And I loved that. I loved working with the kids. When I went to Guyana, it kind of was like life-changing for me in two ways. One is that I never anticipated was I came home thinking about a vocation. The other was I taught there for two years and I saw that they they had a lack of resources and there weren't a lot of special ed services. Mm. And the children were really kind of left to their own devices if they didn't fit into 
the normal way of doing education there. My interest was like peaked in um, education in special ed. I decided that I wanted to be a sister. I also wanted to go into education, but I couldn't do both at the same time. So mm-hmm. I continued in social work. And then eventually the call was still there to be a teacher. And then I got my master's once I was in first vows in mm. special ed and education. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I also work in vocation ministry now. And some of the, the women that I companion, they are kind of like, how do I figure this out? Like, this is a new thing. So if it's a new thing and I haven't thought about it my whole life, how do I know it's a call? And it sounds like for you, it was something that kind of emerged in your life later versus like my vocation story is when I was a kid, I started thinking about it. How did you know, like have a confidence in the fact that this was what you were meant to be? I'm not sure at first I had that much confidence, but I knew that something was something deep inside was saying, you have to give this a try. I would say my connection and my faith has grown. It's something that I treasure as being a sister of mercy, but then I didn't have it as much. I had some, it was Mm -hmm. like this little seed that was like growing. It just felt right. Like people say like when they're going to get married and and maybe it hasn't been like a long courtship, et cetera. Like they just know. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm always like, how do you just know? Right. Mm-hmm. But there were different experiences. I think I put a lot of faith in that conversation with the sisters that day, because to me, that seemed like, so when things happen that are kind of feel like crazy and feel like, wait, why did this happen? I call them like God instances. Mm-hmm. God had to be in this somewhere. Right. So I just reflected on that. And that really stayed with me. Like I, that wasn't a coincidence that that happened, mm-hmm. right? That on the same day I had that thought, it's the same day the sisters came over and were talking about their vacation stories. So like little signs, I just pay attention to that. And I tried to like write them down or just really be conscious that they happened. And that that gave me like the courage mm-hmm. to continue because, because I didn't know. And I, my parents, the people around me, they were Catholic, but they weren't, there wasn't a real sense of call involved in their lives as much. And it was difficult to explain that, right? So difficult to explain it to young people to say, you know, what, I didn't know about this when I was younger, but I just know, I just know that God is in this now. And hmm. every step of the way I was reaffirmed. So I think it's more that I found the courage somewhere to take the step. And once I took the step, then it was reaffirmed. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that like, the courage, which I really feel like is, you know, we say leap of faith sometimes in in our Christian life of like, we just, we really don't know, like, are we going to land or like, is this going to hurt? Is this going to, but somehow we just do this great leap of, of surrender into the mystery. And would you, would you say that courage is grace or, or like, yes. Yeah. I think it is grace. And I think it's just my vocation minister when I first started once we have like this process of you live with the sisters for one or two years to see like what you think and then you go mm-hmm. like on you know onto the division and she heard me say that I was only going to stay six months and she's like well if you're doing that you know if you're only staying six months why are we doing this mm-hmm. so I think that the grace comes as you go forward in the process yeah courage is grace and then it began to develop in me this deeper call, this deeper sense of who God is, this deeper something that I really couldn't explain, but I knew was there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Some people might be tuning in and for the first time and not used to all this churchy language that we're using, like call and grace. <laughs> it's like, it's very much none speak. 
what is grace actually? I just remember clearly driving a car with like my childhood best friend. And I was, I had come home from Guyana. So I was in like in that discernment, like that year of, or time of trying to decide and figure out where is God in this, right? But mm-hmm. I'm not sure then I had the language to say what discernment is, or I had the language to say what grace is. And the people surrounding me don't have that language either. But I just remember telling her, I think that this is God's grace coming through. And I know she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, it's just, (laughs) it's just like that little feeling, that thing that like makes you want to do something. It's kind of like God being there. God will be there in different ways. And I'll see the signs and I'll know that it's the right thing. But it's hard to explain what those words mean when you're not surrounded, Mm. surrounded by them. Mhm. I mean, yeah, I mean the technical definition, right, of discernment is like that we're listening and and following and grace is a free gift from God. <laughs> so so that can mean so many things. Yeah. Yeah. You've been teaching high school for how many years? I've been teaching for 10 years, but I taught middle school in an inner city school for 5 years and then I switched to high school and this is my 5th year. At, at a Mercy High School in Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're teaching theology? Yes, I teach theology. Um, I teach this year, I'm teaching juniors and seniors. So for us, the critical concerns of the Sisters of Mercy are social justice oriented, and our, our junior year is social justice. So I'm teaching a like social justice class, but it's kind of, it's how does, where is God in all of this? And it's really um, heavy on Catholic social teaching and on like the human dignity, the dignity of the human person. So that's mainly what we focus on. And then senior year is like a little bit of everything. It's kind of death and dying as well as world religions, like half and half, and then sort of like a wrap up of their mercy experience. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you're really sharing the charism of your community with your students. Yeah. And what's that like? It's the part of teaching that I love the most. I couldn't imagine being in a school where it wasn't, I wasn't in that environment because my like passion really is smaller, younger children. Like I love first grade or second grade, Mm. but then it's also that whole sense of what we've been talking about, like grace and God's call, because that's not where I wanted to go. When I left the middle school, I was going to go to first grade and it's very difficult here. A lot of Catholic schools have closed and finding a job, even in the public school was difficult. I didn't have to look far. Like I hadn't even left the middle school yet. And I ran into the principal of the high school and she said, well, we have a position. Why don't you come talk to me? And I said, okay. But in my head, I said, nope, 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 nope. I'm not doing that. (laughs) Right. I had already made final vows with the sister of mercy. So I had said yes to being a sister for life. I had been a sister long enough to know that I need to pay attention. I need Mm -hmm. to discern. I need to see where is God's grace like calling me. And so even though I wanted to ignore it, I went and talked to her, but I went in, like I prayed right before I went in and I was like, um, like, give me the openness, but that's not really what I wanted. I didn't want to be open, <laughs> even though, even though I prayed for that, God was working. Uh-huh. So we went in we had this conversation and I went home and I'm just going to be honest, like I went home and I sat on my front porch and like I had a glass of wine and this is where I was came home and I don't like drink very much. And she's like, oh, does this mean it went good? I said, don't talk to me right now. And she's like, well, what happened? Was it bad? I said, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and then 
so then I like just took some time to really pray, to think, to discern, see where is God leading me in this. And I, I just knew, okay, God, you're saying yes to this. And part of what God was saying yes to is that being able to be a presence, to be a mercy presence in that school. I'm the only sister of mercy there full time. And to be able to really um, bring the charism of the Sisters of Mercy, which if you wonder, like, what is charism? What the heck is she talking about? Like, it's it's like the spirit of our community to be able to bring that to the children, to the kids every single day mm. me, means so much to me. <laughs> A kid asked me recently, Sister Jenny, do you have to do service hours? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm my whole life (laughs) wow yeah so that's what you love about your job your ministry Mm -hmm. is sharing the mercy charism Mm -hmm. which is so cool but what's hard about it (laughs) nothing's hard it's all great all the time (laughs) don't lie this is for public consumption and you're a sister (laughs) yes right so I think that it's it's been very difficult um Teaching is always hard because especially I think anywhere, but in a Catholic school, there's a lack of resources oftentimes and people don't realize that. So you're always pulled in a lot of different directions. So I teach, I'm the diversity, equity, inclusion coordinator. I coach cross country and track. So I do a lot of different things, but within all of that, the center is like, it's God, but even though the center is God, the challenge is there. And I, so the challenge was there before the pandemic, but after the pandemic, it became a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And I think because teachers are used to structure in a sense, we're used to, it got, the pandemic got everybody out of their status quo in every way. So we're used to going in, we're used to doing what we do. And that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it was from day one. And it was just so much uncertainty like okay we're going to be out of school for two weeks then we're going to be out of school for a month now we might not go back till the end of the school year the chaos that it brought to teachers lives to students lives to families lives we still don't know totally how to respond to that because you're trying to teach in the classroom you're trying to teach on zoom you're trying to do all these things you've never done before and also you're grappling with what's happening yourself for many religious women, like the ones who are maybe 50 and under, 60 and under, are also living in communities with older people. So then you're concerned about their safety, you're concerned about what you might be bringing into the house. Like teachers in general, were dealing with this with their families too. So it's, it's very chaotic. And I don't think the chaos has calmed down. I actually think this year, from what many educators are saying, is harder than the previous years, because we still, it's still living into the unknown, but it's also the fatigue of having to deal with this for so long and not knowing. And the last year for my school, we were in person, but many kids were out. Mm. And I think what was the challenge, why there's so much burnout, I think is happening because teachers are compassionate people. Like they want to try to reach their students, but you didn't ever feel good enough because you were trying to teach kids online and kids in the classroom at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult. So I feel like teachers in general weren't able, and if if their students were all online, they weren't always able to meet their needs either. And then they're home with maybe they have three or four kids of their own trying to meet their family's needs. And so I think the fatigue of that 
is showing in this year. Nobody seems to have a lot of energy around and the students included. Mm. So it's hard to figure out, I think, in education in general, where we're going. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I actually just heard I on uh, NPR yesterday that 50% of teachers want to quit right now. Yeah. There's burnt out, they're tired, all the reasons, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and I know that the, what's it called? The great resignation is happening in workplaces, like across the board. It feels like a real crisis when it comes to educating children of the future. <laughs> One of the things they need is like, consistency and they need adult relationships that are day in day out showing them their care so that they're cared for it's really hard because i think in general the pandemic is pointing to a lot of systemic problems and a systemic problem is education it is that teachers are not paid enough so then people are kind of reevaluating their lives and saying why am I killing myself? But it's really difficult, I think, for teachers because they are so compassionate. They love the kids. That's what they love about going into the classroom every single day. And yet they've been able to slow down a bit and say, but I don't know if I can continue to do this for mm. 10 years or five more years. Or So I think it's pointing out a problem that was already there. I read something recently that was talking about before the pandemic, the average time of teachers staying, new grads staying in education is five years. Mm. So it was, I think it was already a problem. And then you put the pandemic on top of it. And I think it's a real crisis. It's not the only place that there's a crisis. There's going to be and has been a crisis in finding enough healthcare workers and finding enough people in general. I have a different perspective because I come at most things that I do as a sense of call. And I think maybe people, they don't use that language, but they're kind of moving towards that in their lives. They're moving at looking and saying, you know what? I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And I'm getting, it's not always about money, but what is that doing to my family and where, what are we really being asked to do here? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. People are getting to the root of who they're meant to be and are trying to, to claim some balance and some integrity of how they balance work with their life and so on and so forth. That makes sense, but it's also creates so much upheaval. <laughs> right. So much upheaval as the pandemic was happening and like one week led to two, led to four months, you know, mm-hmm. I kept saying, maybe this will lead to change, but it's it's not going to lead to change if in just a couple of months we go back to the way we were. But now nobody can go back to the way they were. As we try mm-hmm. to recreate things that, that happened in schools and colleges everywhere, I hope that it's going to lead to that creativity and to that sense of why, why are we doing this? Change happens slowly, but this is something that, you know, happened to everyone. Maybe the first time in history that the whole world can say they went through a similar, not the same, but similar experiences. And what does that mean? I mean, they're not, everybody's going to use call, but what does that mean for, for the sense of, of who we are as people and where we go in the future? Yeah. Well, what are your students saying? What, what do high schoolers say about it now? And what are they thinking? I think for them, it's really, we're not going to see the, and we see, so in education in general, teachers are seeing the problems with students having been home for a year, two years, the socialization, like they're seeing real problems happening that, that are going to correct themselves over time. But I think for high school students, we're not going to see the impact until years later. I think there are a lot, 
positive and negative. One of the positive things I believe for them is the resiliency, right? Like never in a time in their life, they always basically, I teach pretty like middle-class, some lower-class, some upper-class, but pretty middle-class kids, but they've been just kind of going along in their lives. They have their needs met. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time that maybe things aren't going the way that they wanted. And I don't think we're going to see the impact of that until they're in college and they're then in the workforce and kind of, but I think they're going to be leaders and they are leaders Mm -hmm. and they're going to take, I think that having this happen to them is only going to make them stronger because Mm -hmm. they can look back and say, well, I made it through that. I can make it through anything. Whereas Mm -hmm. we haven't had that lately, which has been kind of a little bit, not for everybody because life is difficult, but for the kids that I teach, life has been just kind of easy. And, and all of a sudden it wasn't. So for them, they feel right now, and this is a very adolescent way of looking at it, that they've been robbed of something. I mean, some, our freshmen are juniors now. So they hold, their whole school career has been the pandemic. And mm-hmm. it's been a lot of things that have been taken away from them. But they, in that, we've also been able to see there are things that we can celebrate and the little things that we do now mean so much more. So mm. we just had spirit week and they were just so into it, into celebrating it because they hadn't had the things. They couldn't go on the trips that they've been able to go on. They can't go next door and see the sisters, right? Mm. There's a lot of things that we haven't been able to do, but I think they're going to be so much more creative in solving world problems. Yeah. 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 It's kind of exciting to think about what their gen- generation is capable of. That's- mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that they have the pandemic and they also have this call to look at racial injustice in our, in our country. And I think that they see that in their own school community, as well as being able to look at the larger world. And I think they're really able to question in a way that maybe adults aren't able to question. They have this raw sense of like what's right and wrong. I think that we're going to start to see a lot of great things emerge from them. Mm. It sounds like your students might be your teachers. <laughs> they totally, they totally are, right? We started this just a little bit before everything started in the country um, because we were part of a grant. The person that gave us the grant kind of was looking at our high schools and saying, you know what, there's not enough diversity in the Catholic high schools in Buffalo. What do we do to help that? And the kids that are there mm. give us these incredible stories of things that have happened to them. How do we make this? like a welcoming, belonging environment for everybody. So we kind of have been on that journey and the students are really the ones leading that. Mm, mm. And what what are the things you do? It's a lot of discussion. We use restorative justice um, a lot when things happen because oftentimes there's so much, I don't know if the word is corruption, but there's in music, there's so many like words that are used and things that happen in the everyday that students don't realize that they are discriminating against somebody else. So I think it's just about our students. We don't have a lot of diversity, but we have enough for things to rub against each other. And it's really about talking to each other. So when they know somebody that's experienced it, they're so much less likely to do it themselves and to kind of look and see what are the problems. So it's a lot of talking with each other. Um, My junior class is reading the book, Just Mercy. Hmm. And that really has helped us that book is about Brian Stevenson, who created this great thing. And like he, when he, what the students love about it is when he first started his own journey and he has a sense of call too, like of going into the prisons in the South 
seeing who was there and seeing that people that were on death row didn't necessarily belong there. And from that one experience, what that led to him creating, our students are really drawn to that story. Mm. And so I just take that story and say, okay, then now what are you going to do? And Mm. they might not do something tomorrow, but they will do something, most of them in the future. Mm-hmm. And so you you mentioned restorative justice is one of the things you do in the school. What yes does that mean? Yes. Instead of giving out detentions, you're asking right. people so, to make up. Yeah, basically, but it's a little more in depth than that. But yeah, so we we try not to be punitive in our response. So um, when things happen, a lot most of our problems are around racial slurs that students don't even realize are racial slurs. So mm-hmm. it's about, so restorative justice is a process and we use an actual, actual people who come in who are trained in it, mm-hmm. who come in and it's about listening to both sides. And so it's about the student that felt like they were wrong, but all this, also the student who caused the problem. Mm-hmm. And really when we leave then, both sides have come to like a resolution through talking. Usually, you don't, it's not always about resolution, but the what we use it for it usually is because the offenses aren't so terrible. Like they use it a lot of times in the criminal justice system, which is different. But for what we use it for, it's really about listening to each other and understanding and kind of in a simplistic way, like agree to disagree in a mm-hmm. way, but but also totally listening to another student's story. And so once when we did it, a student shared the story of getting off the bus. She takes the public bus and then walking down her street and going like to her door every day. And so every single day that she does that, the drug dealers on her street protect her. They know that she's a private school girl. They see her in her uniform and in willing for her and able in, in a way for her to get down the street safely and go inside the drug dealers help her to do that. Mm-hmm. And when she shared that story to other students who don't have that experience at all, it changed. It changed how they relate to each other because mm-hmm. it was like, now I know you. Now I understand something about you that I, I was never willing to listen to before. Hmm. 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 Yeah. So relationship building. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we aren't. So we try not to. We don't have a lot of policies and procedures around it. We just, it's just um, something that we agree to do in our school and that we try to not say, well, you did this, you're suspended for three days. We really suspend. You're offering mercy. You are, after <laughs> yes. all, that's what you're doing. You're being a place yeah. of mercy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What else about education? For those of us that have not stepped foot inside of a high school in years, and there's some listeners for sure who are older than us. So they mm-hmm. themselves have probably avoided a school for as long as they could. <laughs> what, what else do people need to know about the realities of education and the complexities about education nowadays? I think one of the biggest ones, and I believe it's something that's happening everywhere, but it's mental health. There's a real shift happening, at least in my school, to try to be aware of the emotional needs of the students. The mental health problems are significant. And, and I, they were significant before the pandemic. And it's trying to figure out how to meet these needs. And it's not something that's always been talked about, right? It, mm-hmm. it, for people who are very, or just even a little bit older than we are to say, oh, I was suicidal or I 
am bipolar or I have ADHD or whatever it is that the student is struggling with, it's not something people talked about at all ever. And so to have young students talking about it can be difficult for older administrators. But I think because of so many things that have happened and the suicide rates and everything that's going on, we have to pay attention to mental health because if we don't pay attention to that, we're not, we're not going to be able to get much further. Like you have to take care of both needs, the educational and the mental health. And we're, we're doing that as long, along with other schools, but I believe it's a real struggle for, for many schools and for young elementary kids as well. And I also think LBGTQ issues are not issues, LBGTQ, like the presence of students who are coming. And for the first time, it's kind of like mental health. They're feeling okay and safe to say, this is who I am as a human being. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for schools to be able to react to that. And elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, especially Catholic schools, are finding themselves in this place of what do we do? So at least in my school, we're trying to come at it with um, we accept who you are, no matter what that is, and come in with a welcoming spirit. But it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of what you're doing is compassionate conflict resolution or like helping people to kind of like navigate these stormy waters or something? Yeah, it's totally that. And I think it's why for me, I like education because of that. Like I come from a social work background. So it's for me, it fits both of my skills, Mm. but it doesn't fit all of our teacher skills in general, not just at my school everywhere. Right. It's so much of education is way more than teaching now. It's relationship building, right? You can't get anywhere, at least for me, I can't get anywhere in the classroom about the book we're reading or whatever we're doing unless I have a relationship with the students. And I, I'm not sure that was always the case. I mean, this is simplistic. I don't know exactly where all of that comes from, but some of it, a lot of it comes from social media. Social media can be very positive. It can also be negative in a young person's life. So there's that like, they want to have relationship, but they don't necessarily know how. Mm. And so you have to kind of guide in that way, mm-hmm. right? That there's more that you can have relationships on social media, but you can also have relationships, caring relationships with people. And so, but that need was never there before. Mm. I think, I think teachers, it used to be, you could go in the classroom and you teach the material and you're done, but it's so much more than that. You're everything. Mm. And, some, and I think that's where some of the burnout is coming from, because mm. how do you, Thing for everybody you really can't mm-hmm. you can try I think I'm superhuman most of the time so. <laughs> I, yeah like in my head I do like, <laughs> like oh sure I could do that no problem but then when I'm actually doing it I'm like how did I think that I had the time and energy for this right. but, but it was like a need so I didn't say no to it mm. yeah 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 There is sort of this attitude in you that I'm hearing of just this great can do spirit, right? This is when I think of sister Jenny Wilson, it is sort it is like, oh, I can do that. (laughs) I was kind of expecting that to come up in this conversation. And I'm wondering what you discover about yourself and about God and the principles that ground you as you embrace life and the possibilities and the chances that you are given to serve. It can be challenging at times, but for me, like my spirituality, my sense of who God is, 
is rooted in abundance. It's rooted like in that glass is always full type type of mentality that God is always there. And it is a challenge. The, the challenge is for me to take the time away, to take the time to really have the silence because I believe in like the whole world, the universe, the everything that I'm in, like God is there in everything. And so saying yes, like I'm saying yes to God, but, but that has its limits. Because if I don't take the time away to really be contemplative, to pray, to just like shut everything down, then I can't continue to say yes. I have so much enthusiasm for life and for people in general. My community, the Sisters of Mercy, have given me so many tools to work with my spirituality. And so things that are important to me, like spiritual direction, like going on a silent retreat every year, that like blows my students' minds. They're like, you're quiet for eight days. You don't talk to anybody. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not exactly about that, about, right? So, but it's about quieting yourself and quieting yourself to be able to then say yes to everything around you. And that's, that's my lifelong struggle. That's going to be my that's my struggle since I was one years old all the way up till you know 45 yeah but, but I do have this that I do see God in everything and but I also have to take that time away to make sure that that I can continue to say yes because I'm enthusiastic but I also get frustrated so in the and not to come out I have to take the time that I also need mm, amen me too <laughs> <laughs> it is about knowing who we are, isn't it? And then also like making choices and um, being very intentional about, okay, I have to be disciplined about this prayer right now. <laughs> and like, you know, carving out the time and being mm-hmm. committed to it, even though like the reality is I'd like to sleep in or <laughs> I'd like to just respond to this thing that's occupying my mind. And, mm-hmm. you know, no, actually you're a sister or you're a Christian, you're a person of God, you're a child of God, and you need to cultivate that inner life so you can be filled and and respond and give generously to be a person of abundance and not you know burnt out which right is a problem yeah I think yeah. each person finds that in themselves I mean that for me that's the gift of religious life that mm-hmm. I have the ability to say no I can't do that I need to focus like one an example is it's a small example but every year our community has a new year's eve retreat and then we have like a service and a renewing of our vows our vows are for life it's just a renewing of them to ourselves basically Mm -hmm. and that retreat day is really sacred to me like I don't let pretty much I don't let anything get in the way of that because I love that time to think about this is what's happened last year and this is where the new Mm -hmm. year is going but then also we do like some sharing after the silent retreat day with like Mm -hmm. the people that we live with and then we go to Mercy Center which is where most of our sisters are and we have the mass and etc but my family has a really part-time understanding why I always have to leave from our Christmas celebration to come back right and every year it's the same thing and I'm like I would think after 15 years they would be used to this Mm. and like I started to like tell them well I have I'm required to go to this but not really in a sense it's a call Mm. but it's part of who I am right and I need that I need that to be able to live my life so it's like trying to balance all of that sometimes. Yeah, that's a good example. Sister Jenny, what is radical discipleship for you? I think it's in a way it's getting out of bed every single morning. Hmm. So it's getting out of bed with that enthusiasm. I'm just a story's coming back to me. Uh, I had 
was talking to like a third grade class about vocations and about my life. And this third grader raised his hand and he just couldn't like, he couldn't contain himself with this question. And he said, he did say just that, how do, what makes you get out of bed in the morning? Hmm. And I was like, looked at this kid and I was just thinking it's my love of God, right? It's my love of being who I am, taking who God I believe is calling me to be and just being that in everything that I do. So like, I think the word radical sometimes could throw off the conversation because I I believe like what I do every day is not that radical. And then in some ways it is. It is like going against the grain when you're thinking about entering religious life and the it's so like different from the main mainstream, but is it really? What about radical discipleship is radical? It, and I think it's that relationship with God in that everything that I look at is honoring God in myself and honoring God in others. I think that's what makes it different and what makes what you do every day have a sense of call. One of the things that's really important to me is meeting with a friend who she's not a sister of mercy. She's Lutheran. But I feel like a breath of relief and fresh air when we sit down together. We can just talk about our lives because God is at the center of both Mm -hmm. of our lives. And our language for God is different. And that doesn't matter. It's And she's a teacher also. But the way she might live out her Christian life is a little bit different. But she's doing it at the center is what is God calling her to. And that's what's at the center of my life, too. So I think that's what makes it radical. And when you look at our lives, you... You can see that in both of our lives. Mm. And in a world where we're taught to do whatever we want and whatever feels good mm-hmm. for us to choose to do what God wants us to do, <laughs> which doesn't always, isn't always what we want, or it doesn't always feel good. In fact, sometimes it means moving towards suffering and embracing it. Right. Anyway, that's a very radical thing to do. Right. It is and countercultural to be Christian, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah, it is. And and I always say every just every big moment in my life has come through God saying or hearing or something. It wasn't ever the direction that I thought I was going in. Mm. Right. So like that call, that way of being in the world, it's it is different, even though it feels normal to me and it feels like the everyday, it's not necessarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like a bit of a surrender or submission. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like, okay, you're in control. I'm here. <laughs> right, right. You never know. Like, it just might be a phone call that you get saying, will you do this? Or what do you think about this? It comes back to where is God in all of that? And how difficult that can be to do in, in what is our society today. There's just so much noise all of the time. But again, cultivating the contemplative practices so we can kind of like sift through the noise and get to what's oftentimes a whisper of, of God's nudging and mm-hmm. saying, you know, this is, this is the thing. Here I am. Here I am. And this is who you are. And this is how you can respond to me, my love. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenny, what is messy about all this for you? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Right. Life is, is so messy. And I think Actually, we had a guest over last night and um, he was saying like, we had this great dinner and we had wine and it was really relaxing. And he was like, do you do this every day? And I'm like, no, we never do this. But I, <laughs> I, I think that what sometimes people think about, about religious life and about our lives is that it's simple and that we pray all the time. There is prayer, but 
I bring my relationship with God to everything that I do. And it's messy all of the time. You can't deal with human beings and it not be messy. And but life is hard no matter what you do. And so every day when I walk into the classroom, in a sense, I never know what's going to happen, right? It could go smooth or there could be five phone calls saying, we need you in the office, this happened, right? Mm -hmm. Because we all bring ourselves. We bring hopefully who God is calling us to be, but we also bring all the other stuff that gets into our lives, right? And so what's messy every single moment, right? So I live with a sister um, and a woman from Haiti and the three of us make up what we call community and we pray together and we eat together. And it doesn't mean that it's simple or easy. It means that we bring intentionality to our lives. We try to make this, this positive in the midst of everything. In some ways, I love people and I care about people so much that embracing that messiness in myself and in others is what makes my call real. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Jenny, for coming on Messy Jesus Business. You're welcome. I loved it. invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Where a sister Jenny and I discussed the Christian virtue of mercy, I'm going to read for you a passage from the Gospel of Luke, wherein Jesus reminds us of the call to be merciful. As you listen, I invite you to breathe deeply and pray. Notice how the Holy Spirit is inviting you to be an instrument of mercy today. A reading from Luke, chapter 6, verses 36 through 38. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Stop judging and you will not be judged. Stop condemning and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and gifts will be given to you. A good measure, packed together, shaken down, and overflowing will be poured into your lap. For the measure with which you measure will in return be measured out to you. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace.
and all good. <laughs>